Bridge. So a little bit more about me. I, like you said, my name is Daniel Nemers, and I am the second youngest of 10 kids. Get out of here, Joey. Second youngest of 10 kids. So for those of you who want to diagnose me psychologically as I keep preaching, that it's probably pretty accurate. I'm also a preacher's kid. So that also, Joey, what are you doing? Okay, yeah. Get out of here. So I'm also a preacher's kid. My dad's right over there. He's been a preacher for longer than I've even been alive. So that also explains why I was a little bit terrible growing up. But a little bit also about me. So when I was 11 years old, I heard the message of the gospel. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and then died on the cross for our sins and then victoriously rose from the grave, therefore giving us this gift of salvation. And all you have to do is place your faith in him and then you get to go to heaven. I heard that when I was 11 years old, and I was like, holy cow. My dad's told me that about 100 times, but it finally clicked, and I placed my faith in Jesus Christ. And then for about five years um, after that, I fell into drug and alcohol addiction. So I was a believer, absolutely. Uh, once you get saved, you don't become unsaved. But I just had this life that was just diving into sin. And finally, after realizing that it was totally unfulfilling, totally unsatisfying. God whisked me out of that and called me to the ministry. And now I'm married to my wife, Kayla, who's over there. We have a sweet baby girl named Annabelle Marie. She's super chubby, only seven months old, but love chubby babies. Um, so another story. So my brother-in-law, this was years ago. He's married to my oldest sister, Sarah. And it was their first Mother's Day as a couple. Okay, so tons of anticipation by my sister to get this awesome Mother's Day gift, right? Right, ladies? So you're just like, yes. You know what? I went through the pains of childbirth. You better have an awesome gift for me to open for Mother's Day. Those are the expectations. Keep in mind, my sister's only like 28 or 29 years old. That'll make sense here in a second. So (laughs) my sister's sitting at the table, unwraps her present, so excited, and she opens up neck cream like you have a nasty looking neck put on this neck cream neck cream (laughs) totally blew that gift right my brother-in-law was like totally clueless why would you ever even on your 50th mother's day guys do not buy neck cream let the ladies do it themselves you just you just steer clear of that why did my brother do that my brother-in-law he was totally forgetting the importance of why that gift mattered, right? He was forgetting that this gift actually represented his bride, the one that he loved, the one who just actually pushed out a baby. That's what this gift actually represented. It was so important, and he totally blew it, right? It was almost like this Mother's Day gift was like an afterthought as he's like getting groceries one day. He's finally in the checkout line. Nut cream, sounds good. I'll tack that on and just give it to her as Mother's Day gift, right? It was an afterthought. It was totally not important at all. So I feel like we sometimes do this when we approach the story of Jesus Christ in the gospel. We get so excited and so animated that guess what? Jesus Christ died for your sins, which is totally true, totally amazing. But we forget one of the most important aspects of the gospel, that Jesus Christ actually rose from the grave. When we're telling people the gospel, we'll be like, you know, Jesus Christ died for your sins. And if we remember, we're like, oh yeah, and also he he rose from the grave. But he definitely died for your sins. Guys, what I want to get across to you today is that 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so important. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and that message should be pulsing through our veins. And it, it's actually the center and the climax of Christianity. It's not some tack-on gift that's an afterthought when we're telling people about the gospel. So, today I want to show you three reasons why the resurrection is so important. Go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So before I go on, Joey so lovingly tasked me with doing the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, which is 58 verses. So buckle up, because I'm going to go into excruciating detail of every single... No, just kidding. I'm actually going to be skipping verses 20 through 49, as all of you take a breath of fresh air. Um, But that does mean that I am skipping pivotal, pivotal verses in this uh, story about the resurrection. So when you guys have time, go back and reread it. I'm sorry we don't have time to go over all of it, but just forewarning you. So, why is the resurrection so important? The first reason is this. If it didn't happen, our faith is totally worthless. Totally worthless. This is found in verse 12. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Paul writes this. He says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Because if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, listen to this, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God, because we have testified wrongly about God, that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Listen to this. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have perished, those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we put our hope in Christ for this life only, we, we believers, we Christians, should be pitied more than anyone. So the resurrection is so important to our faith because if it didn't happen, our faith is totally worthless. That's what Paul's saying right there, isn't he? That's what he's saying. He's saying like, okay, the resurrection, when we look at a normal human life, you're born, you live, you die, done. It's not a normal thing for human beings to be resurrected from the dead, right? That's so unbelievable, so improbable, we never see it. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually solidifies him as the Son of God because it's such a miraculous thing that he's done, right? And Jesus actually says in the Gospels, that he's going to be risen from the dead. So if he didn't rise from the dead, therefore Jesus is lying. And if Jesus is lying, he can't be God, because God never lies, right? And if God, if Jesus is lying, and if he's not God, that means that somehow, some way, we have to go back and be like, okay, guess what? What we are placing our entire life existence in because of this book, it's wrong. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that means, I guess, we have to go looking for some other type of religion, right? Something else to dictate our life's meaning and purpose. John MacArthur, a great preacher, he says, everything in the gospel of Jesus Christ, everything connected to our salvation, every promise that we hold in time and eternity is linked inextricably to the resurrection. 
what happened to Jesus before his death is not nearly as important as what happened to Jesus after his death. So if the resurrection didn't happen, if Jesus was still buried in his tomb, then we have no Savior. We have no God who is capable of withstanding death, no God who is capable of overcoming death. Therefore, sin wins. Therefore, the devil wins. We have absolutely no hope. Our faith is worthless, right? And look at verse 19. If we have put our hope in Christ, if we put our hope in the resurrection, the promises that he's told us, for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone else. So think of it this way. If the resurrection didn't happen, then there's really no point to life, right? If all that happens is we're born, we live, we die, and we cease to exist, well, I guess we're believing in the wrong religion. One thing to sign up for is maybe Buddhism, right? What Buddhism teaches is that actually living, breathing, and life in and of itself is suffering. So if you're living and you're breathing, then you're suffering, and that's a bad deal. So what Buddhism teaches us is that, okay, so you're going to keep being reincarnated after you die unless you reach enlightenment. Therefore, you need to follow the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And once you follow all those great, really, really strict rules, the end goal is to cease to exist. Who wants to sign up for that? (laughs) That is easily the most depressing religion I've ever seen, right? (laughs) Like you sit down and you're like, okay, as I'm reading all these things, the end goal is to cease to exist. Yippee, right? My point is this. As Paul shows us, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, we of all people, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, we of all people should be pitied. People from the outside should be looking at us on, oh, those poor guys, they are believing in something that is totally false. Remember, a dead king is a worthless king. A dead king is a worthless king. Because even, though, even if you generate tons and tons of followers, if your king dies, your followers drop off the map, right? So the resurrection is so important because if it didn't happen, our faith is totally worthless. So half of you guys are thinking, wow, this guy's totally bummer of a preacher. Okay, we are going to ramp it up here with the good news. So the resurrection is so important because it did actually happen. It actually happened. Look at verse 1. We're backtracking. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, Paul says this. He says, Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you, as most important, what I also received. Pause. So you guys have been going through 1 Corinthians. Paul has been talking to this church in Corinth, left and right, giving them all these great things to do. So, with everything leading up to this verse right here, he's saying this is the most important thing to get across to you guys. If there's one thing I want you to remember, this is it. Look at verse 3. For I passed on to you as of most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. But he doesn't stop there, right? That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. 
Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. This, those eight verses are some of the greatest apologetics for Jesus Christ actually raising from the dead. There is literal proof in these eight verses. Actually, I'm going to show you two glaring pieces of evidence that Jesus Christ actually rose from the grave. And I'm bringing this up because so many people that are going to be talking to you guys that are totally against Christianity, they're going to say, and some of you are actually probably here right now, okay, there's lots of cool stories. Jesus was a great guy, but rose from the dead? (laughs) Yeah, right. There is absolutely no way. And guess what? That kind of makes sense, right? We don't normally see that in our daily walks, right? So two glaring pieces of evidence. The first piece of evidence is this, the empty tomb. Pretty simple, right? Look at verse 3. It says, For I passed on to you, as of most importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. And then verse 4, that he was buried, that he was physically buried in a tomb. Like Jesus Christ physically died and was physically buried in a tomb. Most of you guys are like, yeah, dude, I get it. Like, that's not going to blow my mind. But that's extremely important. Because think of where Christianity actually started. In Jerusalem, right? Right where Jesus Christ was buried. So if Peter, who's actually like one of the main apostles at the beginning that's trying to get Christianity up off the ground, he's going to all these people at Pentecost, and he's saying like, all right, guys, no, Jesus Christ, you just saw him last week. He, he died on the cross, right? You were all there. It was this crazy thing that happened. He rose from the dead. If I'm sitting in the crowd, and I'm like, listen to Peter, I'm like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and fact check you on that. I'm going to walk 30 feet over here, roll out the tomb. Yeah, his, his body's still in there, man. <laughs> Guess what? Christianity is squashed right before it even really began. Actually, in Acts 2, Verse 29, the Apostle Peter is standing in front of a large crowd at Pentecost, right when the church is getting up off the ground, like I said, and he points to a famous empty tomb. He says this, he says, Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David, King David. Every Jew and every, every Israelite knew who King David was. Famous guy. He is both dead and buried, and guess what? His tomb is with us to this day. What Peter's saying is, guess what? You want to go fact check that King David wasn't the Messiah? An easy step is to walk over to his tomb, roll it over, close it, because it probably smells absolutely awful, and then you'll realize that's a dead guy. You go to Jesus' tomb, roll it out, he's not there. The first glaring piece of evidence is the empty tomb. But that's not it, right? The second piece of evidence is the witnesses. Look at verse 5. He, like, goes to town talking about witnesses. He says, And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. So these witnesses that Peter points out that physically saw Jesus die, physically saw him alive after he died. Uh, Paul is actually doing is he's doing a little bit of historical footnoting. You guys know when you're reading like an ap- mostly like an academic book, you'll be reading, and it'll list off this fact, and it'll have like a number or a letter right there, and you're like, okay, what does that mean? At the bottom of the page, it'll say, the author is basically saying, here's the fact that I got, and here's a few of my sources to back me up. That's what Paul's doing. He's saying, guess what? I know what I'm saying is crazy. It might seem crazy, I understand it if you think it's crazy, 
but I have over 500 people that are still alive that you can literally go and ask them if you don't believe me. Guys, the witnesses to Jesus raising from the dead are so incredibly crucial. But let's talk about the witnesses. Who are the first two people to see Jesus risen from the dead? Two women, right? Back in those days, this is going to sound rough, but back in those days, people didn't actually view women. They were like second-class citizens. Like their testimony didn't actually hold up in court. That's how awful they treated women. So if you wanted to start like this great religion, in those days you wouldn't start with like the testimony of two women. But the reason it's so important that it did is because it was so undeniably true that they did believe what they said because they saw Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Another person is James, right? In verse 7, he says, then he appeared to James. James was a younger brother of Jesus Christ. Talk about a rough childhood. All of you kids in here, you're like, I, how many kids in here would actually bow down and worship their older brother? Okay, okay, yeah, right. No, seriously, James, actually, in John ch- chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus, they're like, all of Jesus' brothers are saying, hey, go to this festival, go to this festival, because guess what? If you're the Messiah, you should probably do that to get more popular. And John chapter 3, verse 5 says, for even Jesus' brothers didn't believe him. So James here is called out as somebody who did see Jesus risen from the dead. How did James go from a guy who totally didn't believe in Jesus to a guy who actually writes a book in the Bible Right in the middle there, he saw Jesus risen from the dead. He went from mocking Jesus to praising his older brother as his Lord and Savior. That is a big deal. And then Paul, in verse 8, says, also he appeared to me. You guys know who Paul was. I mean, if you've been here this entire time, this entire series. Paul was a Pharisee rising through the ranks, a rising student. Everybody loved Paul. Paul was great. And it was social suicide for him to go at this extremely high rank and view in Jewish society to believe in this cult-like thing like Christianity. Why would he ever commit social suicide by going from there to here, seemingly, in the eyes of everybody else? He saw the risen Savior. Oh, and also over 500 other people saw Jesus risen from the dead. (laughs) My point is that you have to have both. You can't have just one. Because guess what? If you have an empty tomb, but no witnesses, you could logically come to the conclusion, oh, they just stole the body. That's really easy to come to, right? That's easy. But if you have witnesses, but no empty tomb, you could just say, hey, there's this dead body, guys. Or you could say, this is some mass hallucination on the grandest scale ever that has gone on with them their entire lives, which is totally improbable. What I'm showing you is that you have to have two to make it an unbelievable historical fact and not just a crazy story. So my cousin actually told me a few years ago, he told me this, he was like, guys, 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 I was playing Xbox the other day, and guess what? On Xbox Live, I started playing with Kevin Garnett, and we talked for hours on Xbox Live. If you guys don't know who Kevin Garnett is, he played in the NBA, he's an NBA legend, He was an MVP, he was an NBA champion, and he made over $343 million while he was playing in the NBA. So, richest guy to ever play in the NBA. Must be nice. Anyways, um, 
So basically, Kevin Garnett is like this unbelievably famous person, and my cousin was claiming, hey, I played for hours and got to talk to Kevin Garnett on Xbox Live. And I was like, okay, dude, sure. I was like, so uh, did you happen to like take a video or like a picture? He's like, oh, no. Did you have like any friends that were there that could like validate what you just said? He's like, oh, well, no. I was like, I'm going to go ahead and not believe you then because that's extremely <laughs> impossible, like almost very improbable to happen, right? But playing Xbox Live with Kevin Garnett is probably more probable than Jesus Christ raising from the dead unless you have two glaring pieces of evidence that take a crazy story to a historical fact that actually did happen. So I want to be fully transparent here. There are some things in the Bible that are, I just can't really like wrap my mind around. Sometimes it's like, it can be hard to believe. It can kind of challenge your faith, right? Like the virgin birth. I, I, humanly speaking, I don't, I don't like know how that happens. Like, like it had to be some miracle from God. Like my mind sometimes can't wrap around it. I believe it wholeheartedly because the Bible is perfect. Can't make flaws. And God is bigger than me. So I believe it, but there's just some things in the Bible I'm just like, okay, I'm trying to wrap my mind around it. I'm really, really wrestling with it, but it's hard to really get your mind around it. Or like the end times, right? You read the book of Revelation and you're like, I don't, what? Like, this is so confusing. <laughs> like, I even read like 10 commentaries of all these people and they all have differing opinions. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on. What I'm saying is differences in faith happen among us. They can totally happen. But if there's one of many things that we can go back to that is cemented in stone as a foundation of Christianity, as a historical fact that you can lean on and never think that you're wrong, it's that the resurrection of Jesus Christ did happen. Amen? Amen. So the resurrection is so important because if it didn't happen, then our faith is worthless. But it's so important because it actually did happen. My third reason as to why it's so important is this. Since it did happen, if you're a believer, then you have everything to look forward to. Since it did happen, if you're a believer, you have everything to look forward to. And this is found starting in verse 50. Paul says this. He says, What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility. And this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your sting? Where death is your victory? Oh, sorry, I read that wrong. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, verses 50 through the beginning of 54 are kind of confusing. Talk about incorruptibility, corruptibility, mortality, immortality. Basically, the gist is this. 
If we were to take our sin-filled, sin-ridden bodies and try to waltz on into heaven, I don't even know what would happen. It's impossible. We can't take what is incredibly sinful and go into the presence of a holy and perfect God. It's impossible. We also can't take these old, decaying bodies. Am I right? Amen? I've realized that the second you become a dad, you immediately just like, you're out of shape. I don't know what, I don't know what happened. <laughs> like, I, I, my wife popped up the baby, and all of a sudden, I used to kind of have a six-pack, and now it's just like flub. I don't, know what, I don't know what happened. But our bodies are totally just decaying, right? Super depressing, but the more you live, the more you're like dying progressively. <laughs> Man, I'm kind of having a few bummers in this message. Um, but so basically, my point is like, if you were to try to take this body, the body that you have, which has a ticking time clock, and pass into heaven where there's no time clock. It's just eternity. Like, it doesn't compute. It doesn't work. Something miraculous has to happen, right? God has to take what is incorruptible, or excuse me, what is corruptible, what is stained with sin, and make it incorruptible. He has to take what is mortal, what is decaying, what is dying, and make it immortal. That's what Paul's trying to get to. And one of the things that I, I just love, and it's, it's hard to actually, it's impossible to really sit back and think of what our glorified heavenly bodies are going to be like. But earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul says this, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and no human heart has even conceived, God has prepared these things for those who love them. If you are a believer, you have everything to look forward to. Your mortal, decaying, sin-filled body is going to be made new and clothed with Jesus' righteousness. Because God, before you came to new Christ, before you placed your faith in his perfect life, in his death on the cross, and his victorious resurrection from the dead, you were dead in your sins. If you notice, we're about to have baptisms. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward change. It's a symbol of what God has already done in your heart. So when you go down into the water, that's a symbol of you dying to your sins. But we don't stop there, right? We don't baptize people and just like shove them down, right? That's ridiculous. (laughs) We'd have a few casualties. What we do is we push them back up because guess what that's symbolizing? That's a new life in Jesus Christ. You have everything everything to look forward to with a new body and you'll be with Jesus Christ, with God the Father for eternity in heaven. That's why the resurrection is so unbelievably important. And to wrap it up, let's look at verse uh, 54 and 55 and then verse 58. It's almost like this like battle cry, right? It's actually a taunt over a defeated foe. This is literally... God is taunting his defeated foe. He says this, he says, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? It's like, where is it? Come on out. Oh, wait, you're not there anymore. It's almost like you got this tiny little plankton in this massive sea, and we'll call this plankton death. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this massive whale, who we'll name victory for our sake, Victory just comes up from the depths and just takes this plankton like it's absolutely nothing. The existence of that plankton is just gone. It's almost like this tiny little church mouse, right? Trying to stand up to this massive hungry lion. 
there's just no way that mouse is going to actually defeat that lion, right? That lion's going to whisk it up, eat it, defeat it, and God is going to be reigning victorious. I think what Paul is trying to get across to us is that Satan's sad attempt to orchestrate Jesus' death means absolutely nothing the second Jesus Christ, three days after his death, raises from the grave. Death is destroyed. Victory is here in Jesus Christ. Paul is looking forward to the day that death will truly die when Christ comes back again. Amen? Now, the end of this is verse 58. But I want to look back at verse 14 before we read 58. Verse 14 is sort of in the bummer part of the message. Paul says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Now look at verse 58. With all that in view, with the fact that the resurrection actually did happen, it's a historical fact, and with our resurrection bodies to look forward to in the presence of Jesus Christ, with all that in view, what do we do now? Look at verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, unshakable in your faith, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The resurrection of Jesus Christ not only provides for us a hope for the future, but an ambition for the present. The resurrection of Jesus Christ not only provides for us a hope for the future, our resurrection buys and being with Jesus Christ, which is amazing, but that doesn't mean that we stop there. We have an ambition for the present. Amen? Brian Rosner says, to say that our labor is not in vain is actually to say that our labor, our labor will be rewarded. And when I say our labor for Christ, I mean anything that is holy and demanded of God. For example, preaching the gospel to somebody, loving the poor and the needy and the widows in our community, actually loving your neighbor, talking to your neighbor, and not passive-aggressively aggressively hoping that they get saved so that you can eventually talk to them. No, I mean like really loving your neighbor. That's the labor of Christ. And laboring for God doesn't really seem like labor when you have Jesus Christ's resurrection in view. When we see that our great king swallowed up death by the facts of the resurrection, it gives us a drive to love him more and act on our faith. That's my challenge to you, all of you who have faith in Jesus Christ. Act on your faith. Labor for Christ because it is so much more rewarding when you understand that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. He has victory over every single sin that you could possibly do. My last challenge is this. I know that there is a number of you who don't know Christ. You're sitting here, you're a lot like me back in the day, had tons of questions about the Bible. Who is this God that everybody keeps singing to and who is getting dunked in water? All this is kind of weird. I don't actually fully understand it. Now, just like me, you have a lot of unanswered questions, but remember, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical fact that actually happened. It is undeniable. If Christianity would have been squashed at the beginning, it could have been easily done, but it wasn't because everyone saw that it was a historical fact. Since the resurrection happened, then Jesus really is God. And if Jesus really is God, then he can be your savior. He is fully capable of that if he can rise from the dead. (laughs) 
place your faith in him. I'm not asking you to like look at this Bible and have every single little thing like fully true, even though the Bible is fully true and it is perfect. What I'm asking is for you to start at the foundation of Christianity, the resurrection. Place your faith in him. And if you don't know how to do that, come talk to one of the pastors. Talk to the friends that invited you. Come talk to me. I'd be so, so unbelievably glad to show you what it means to place your faith in Jesus Christ and have your sins fully forgiven. Let's pray.